If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 13 this morning as we continue in our teaching series through the book of Acts. Uh, as you're turning there, um, I bet you have had some type of misunderstanding before in your life. Perhaps there was a time uh, at work with a coworker or a boss where you misunderstood the details of a project or when they were due. Um, maybe you've had a misunderstanding with a child or, or your spouse of, man, I didn't really pick up that signal. I didn't know when you said that you wanted the recipe, it meant that you didn't. Like, maybe that's a thing that you have had before. You ever had one of those situations where maybe you see a movie with a group of people and you just seem to like completely miss the plot and everyone else is talking about all the plot twists and you're just like, oh, I just thought that was how it was. That's cool. Can we go get ice cream now? Like, we've all experienced various forms of misunderstanding in life. It's a natural thing that happens. In Acts chapter 13 today, we're going to see a, a misunderstanding that the Apostle Paul is going to seek to kind of correct in the life of the early church and this thing called the gospel. Acts chapter 1 through 12, where we've just been the last 12 weeks, has laid this foundation for the start of the first church. But it's predominantly been in and around the city of Jerusalem with Peter and John taking this message of Jesus, this gospel, this good news to the Jewish people. But in Acts chapter 13, we're going to start to see a shift because the, the main character, so to speak, is no longer going to be Peter. It's going to become the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, a.k.a. the non-Jewish people. And so every uh, so often throughout this series, we've provided new memory verse cards. So we've got a new one uh, that goes with this chapter, Acts chapter 13. Highly encourage you to grab one of these on your way out. It's where you picked up communion, hopefully on your way in. A couple things things that are going to trend with this shift here as, as the Apostle Paul goes to new regions, new places, reaching new people. It's going to go through Paul himself. He's going to be kind of the point person. And every single time he goes to a new city, there's going to be like this pattern. He's going to go to the city and he's going to find the Jewish synagogue. He's going to go there on Shabbat. He's going to go there on the Sabbath day, what we would probably refer to as Saturday, actually. And he will go there, he'll preach the gospel, but he'll preach this message for Jews, proselytes, converts, as well as Gentiles. And then from that point forward, he'll kind of build a church. He'll kind of plant a church, elect a leader, kind of teach them what they need to know, and then he'll head off to the new city. And something interesting happens because more and more people, especially outside the Jewish ethnicity, are going to be brought into the family of God. And the Jews are going to respond in a couple different ways. And one of the common ways they respond is with hostility. And dare I even say a little bit of hatred towards the non-Jewish people being grafted into the family of God. And today's chapter is kind of where we begin to see this happen uh, in a new way. Acts chapter 13, we're starting in verse 1. Follow along with me. It says this. It says, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Now the word prophet just means in, in biblical sense, not somebody who tells the future, but someone who is just exhorting or explaining to you uh, scripture, so to speak. So not someone who's telling the future, but explaining the word of God. There was Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Manan, who had been brought up uh, with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul, or we know him as Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, 
all for the work in which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. In some ways, they are birthing the mission to go reach non-Jewish people with the gospel. Then the two of them set out on their own way by the Holy Spirit and went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. And John was with them as their helper. John Mark is this man here. It says, then they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. And there they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So notice how this kind of begins. You've got about four or five men And they're in a room praying and fasting. They know the mission of God and the Holy Spirit leads them and anoints two men to go out, Barnabas and Saul. And so Barnabas and Saul, they take off, but they don't really know where to go. And so they're like, okay, well, we're supposed to read the Gentiles or whatever. Maybe we should head to Rome. The, 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 the powerhouse of the world, it's where everyone who probably doesn't, uh, doesn't know God yet probably lives in Rome, so let's head there. Well, I don't know, that's kind of far away. And so Paul looks to Barnabas and says, okay, well, where are you from? And he goes, I'm from Cyprus. He's like, that's great, let's start there. And so they just head to Cyprus. And so if you have your Acts notebook, you could turn with me to the front cover, inside the front cover, and you'll see this map, and I'll put a, a little zoom-in version of this. And what we're going to see today is Jerusalem and Israel is all the way down here. They made their way up to Antioch, and then they're going to head off to Rome, which is like all the way over here. And then they're going to stop, though, at Cyprus, which is the home of, of Barnabas. And then we're gonna, they're going to have an encounter, and they're going to make their way up here to this secondary Antioch called Pisidian Antioch. They don't know where to go. They don't know who to reach out to, who to talk to, but they just have this, this thought. We should probably start with the people that we know. Let's go to the places that are familiar to us and start there. And this is our kind of first point this morning, is that our first mission field is often where we are from and who we know. If you've ever asked yourself, God, who would you have me reach? God, is there anyone that you have placed in my life to to influence for your gospel? If you've ever wondered, God, where do I even begin to live out my faith to help more people find and follow you? Let me give you a hint. It's where you live. It's where you work. It's who you live next to. It's who you see at the ball fields. It's who you see in the office. It's who lives in the same house as you is the first and fundamental place where we are called to be missionaries for the kingdom of heaven is where we live and who we know. Paul and Barnabas, they go to Cyprus and they meet this false prophet named Bar-Jesus, or Eliamus is his Jewish rendering. And it says they also met this man by the name of Sergius Paulus. Now that's a great name. If you're in the name business looking for a kid, might I recommend Sergius? Like they just sounds powerful, doesn't it? And you could go by the nickname Serge. Like what's your name? He's Serge. Like dude, that kid just sounds dope. Like I don't know what he does, what he's going to turn into, but he just sounds like he's going to wreak some havoc in this world. And Bar-Jesus is this sorcerer who's borrowing the name of Jesus for his own power, for his own influence, and he has authority over this pro-council. And it's going to tell us that there's this pro-council by the name of Serge, Sergius Paulus. A pro-council was someone back then who was like one step below the emperor. It was someone with immense power, wealth, and notoriety. And so when you think of someone, you're not, this isn't just like a state senator, This isn't just the local mayor. We're talking like the secretary of state type of influence, wealth, and power. 
And so we have this evil sorcerer by the name of Bar-Jesus who kind of has surge under his thumb. And Paul comes in and kind of says, yo, we got a new message for you. And Bar-Jesus doesn't like this. He's being kind of threatened. It's his turf. It's his influence. It's, it's his team, so to speak. Like imagine for a moment you had the ear of the president, like you had him on speed dial. Maybe you're the top cabinet member of maybe a prime minister. Or let's do this way. Let's say you were the star player of a sports franchise. Yeah, you don't own it. You don't technically call all the shots, but your influence means a lot. And then your team decides to get a different player, a better player with more prestige and more influence. Wouldn't you feel a little threatened? Who's this hat coming in taking away what's working for me? And so he begins to oppose Paul and Paul blinds the dude. Completely just blinds the dude. And it's kind of ironic that Paul, who came to faith in Jesus through a blinding light, then his kind of first miracle is to blind someone else so that he can preach the gospel. And Serge is like, yo, that was dope. I'm in with whatever you got. Bar Jesus over here, he's just got some cool parlor tricks, but you got the real deal. I'm all in. And Paul tells him about the gospel. And as a result of this, it says that Sergius Paulus is amazed. He believes and the craziness and the movement of the spirit of the book of Acts continues. Now, Luke doesn't specifically tell us what happens next with Sergius, but, but history lends us to believe something kind of cool that happens. One would probably think that Barnabas and Saul were on their way to Rome. It's the most logical place. If you want to reach Gentiles, go to the Gentile capital of the world. And then they make a beeline north to this place called Pisidian Antioch. Archaeologists have discovered that Sergius Paulus, his name is on rocks and cornerstones all throughout this city because he was essentially one of the founding members of this place. Now, if you were to pull up an ancient map of the ancient Middle East, you would see the name Antioch about 14 times. Because here's what happened, is that Rome was the powerhouse. They were the place, they had the money, the wealth, the emperor, the prestige, they had it all. But they're like, yeah, but who wants to go live in the boonies? And so they devised this kind of idea and this thought, well, maybe we can establish little beacons of Rome all throughout the, the, the entire world so that if somebody can't make it to Rome, they can at least get to know what it's like. They can at least experience the language. They can experience the culture. They can experience the Roman gods if they so wanted. And that is the term Antioch. So anytime there was an Antioch, it's established as a Roman representation in the ancient world. So Serge has this kind of encounter with Paul. He hears the message. He wants to receive it. He does receive it. Then he says, I'm going to bankroll you. You need to go to my home now. You came to your turf, now go to my turf, and I'm going to pay for you because you need to share this with everyone up there. And so Paul and Barnabas are like, okay, this sounds good. So they head up to Pisidian Antioch, and they walk into the temple. And there was this ancient tradition in the Jewish synagogue that if there was a visiting rabbi, he would get the floor at the end of service. And some of you just kind of tightened up because you're like, service is already long enough. You mean someone else would get to get up and have the opportunity to preach type of deal? It's like, yeah, that's what would happen. It's like, imagine if we had service, right? And before we said, okay, now go be the church where we live, work, and play, we would ask the crowd, does anyone in here, a pastor from a different region or city or nation, and they raise their hand, we'd be like, great, now you come up and now it's your turn to preach. 
You just tell us what God's placed on your heart, what you're learning. And so church would last like hours upon hours. And a lot of us are like, man, the lineup black dog is going to be really long by the time we get out of here. But that's what happens. So Paul gets up and he delivers this message. They would read the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They would read an excerpt of the prophets. And then Paul gets up and shares a message. And he shares a very poignant sermon to the Jewish people in that audience to say, I think we've misunderstood our point. I think we have misunderstood. A lot of us have probably missed the signals of why we are here and what we are here to do. Now, his sermon's like 50 verses, so I'm not going to bore us by, I don't say bore, I don't have the time to read, but, but what I'm going to do, I'm going to read how it starts and then kind of give you a summary of it. So if you skip to verse 16 and 17, it says this. So, so standing up, Paul mentioned with his hand, hello, people, fellow Jews, proselytes. He says, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors and he made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt with the mighty power, but then he led them out of that country. And Paul goes on to describe a summary, a flyover, a survey of the Old Testament. And so you remember when we were in Egypt and we got rescued when, when, when Moses parted the Red Sea and then we went and we walked around the wilderness for 40 years. You remember that? Well, probably not. You weren't alive. You were dead. But you know, you know the story. And then we got to the promised land and things were great. And then we chose to go after false gods, our ancestors, and God continued to put up with us. And then we got so out of control that God sent judges to hold us accountable and it worked for a little while, but we'd go in this cycle and we'd get kind of out of hand again. And so then Paul would, or God would do something else. And then God sent some prophets to warn us, but also to, to exhort us to tell us to get back on track. And then God sent some kings. Oh man, we and our ancestors, we love our kings, do we not? And they're cheering. They're like, amen, yes, King David is the man. And he said, but then God sent that other king who didn't look like the rest of the kings. And he came in and he rode into Jerusalem near the end of his life on a donkey and humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. God remained true to his plan and his promise to redeem all things. And he sent King Jesus to establish the kingdom of heaven here. And how did our ancestors re, uh, you know, respond? They missed the signal and they killed them. And they're like, yeah. That, that did happen. And Paul kind of responds. He says, so for thousands of years, God has been faithful to us, even though we haven't been faithful to him. For thousands of years, we've been prepared for this moment in which the message and the mission and the ministry God of God is coming together. That the long-awaited message for the long-waiting messengers is finally complete. And light bulbs are starting to go off left and right with this crowd, with these people for, the, for hundreds, thousands, perhaps thousands of years have misunderstood what it means to belong to the kingdom of God. And look how they respond. We're going to pick up in verse 42 here this morning. It says, so as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, so Paul was like, amen, go be the church, you live, work, and play, I'm out. And they're like, okay, 
So Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue. The people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who continued to talk with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. Pause there. This sounds like a good, healthy response, right? It sounds like they're starting to put the puzzle pieces together. We've never heard it like this before. You've given us a new insight. What do we do with this? We don't know. Just come back. Come back next week. Tell us more. No, we can't wait till next week. Where do you live? Are you staying at the Holiday Inn? Where you know you okay? We're gonna just follow you there and then go in the grace of God because you've given us the grace of God because we want to find out more. Next Sabbath comes around. On the next Sabbath. Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with compassion. Oh, sorry. They were filled with joy. They were filled with jealousy. And they began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse upon him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, now we turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles. He's not talking to Paul. He's talking to the Jewish people. I've made you a light to the Gentiles. This is from Isaiah 49, I believe it is, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were uh, appointed in, in, in for eternal life and believed. It says, the word of the Lord, though, spread throughout the whole region, but the Jewish leaders enticed God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. Hold up. Paul Barney, come in. I love you, you love me, we're a happy family. And they're like, yeah, we are. And then next week, the entire city shows up. And they're like, we don't want anything to do with this. We're out. This isn't what we thought it was. You told us good news last week. Look who's all showed up at our doorsteps. We want nothing to do with this. What changed? People who were different showed up. It wasn't just Jews and converts anymore. It was non-Jews. It was bankers, soldiers, prostitutes, business owners, single mothers, widowers, all showed up to hear the word of the Lord. And Paul looks to him and essentially says this. This is my summary. He says, Jews were the first, but you are not the only to receive the message of God. He says, you are the first. You are chosen to be a beacon. You are chosen to be a representation. You were set apart to help salvation spread out into the entire world. And as that is happening, heaven is essentially being represented here on earth one week later. And you want nothing to do with it? You've made your choice. I'll go on without you. Like imagine that you were given a gift. Let me give you an illustration of kind of what I feel like. is. Imagine you were given a gift. 
and it was a board game. And so number one, some of us would be like, that's a dumb gift. And some of us are like, sweet, I love board games. Imagine you were given a gift and it was a board game, but it was a cooperative board game, meaning you had to play with two or more people. And the person who gave you this gift said, this is the greatest game you will ever play in your life. It is so fun and you get to know people and, and, and you can just get this joy and it's amazing. It's the greatest game. And so you get to choose who you want to play the game with you. And so you open the game and you read the instructions and you get it set up, but you never invite anyone to play. And you know the rules and how to win and you develop strategy and you study the map of the board and what piece does what and all the best combinations, but you never invite anyone to play. You're missing out on the whole point of the game in the first place. Let me put it another way. Let's say uh, uh, you get pregnant you're planning to get pregnant and, and, and you and your, and your husband and then you decide, man, this is great news. We want it. We've been praying for a child and God has given us this child. And so then you start to call people to share the good news. And you call up mom and dad and you call up other mom and dad and then you call aunts and uncles and you call up your best friend and you call your pastor because he wants to know if you're having a child just because high five or what, I don't know. And you call and then you post it on Facebook and social media and then you slowly, you know, the word gets out and the people that you kind of know at work, anything, what'd you do fun this weekend? You're like, I mowed my lawn. What about you? We found out we're pregnant. And you're like, oh, great. And you know, and so, right? Imagine if you're going through this process, sharing this good news and you get a call from your mom or your dad, hey, I just want to know, why are you sharing this with other people? What do you, what do you mean? This is, this is great news. We want everyone to know. Even people who don't want to know, I'm going to tell them because this is like so, 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 so much filled with joy in my life. I don't even know what, what, no, 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 no. This news is for us and us only. This news belongs, this is family. You're bringing family to the world. Don't you dare tell anyone who isn't in our family about that good news. You'd kind of be like, hold up. That's not how it works. And what Paul is essentially saying to the Jewish people, he says, you've misunderstood the whole point of the good news. We have misunderstood what it means for us to live as the people of God. That the good news isn't just for us. In fact, it came to us first so that we could share it with the rest of the world. So the question that was wrestling in my mind was how or why did the Jews in, in, in Acts chapter 13 get off track in literally one week? And I had this thought. And what I'm about to share next with you, if you're taking notes, you pick out a note sheet and you see that whole blank space, we're going to do some drawings here for a little bit. What I'm about to share next, I, I'm going to just know it's going to be challenging for many of us. And when I say challenging, I don't mean convicting. I mean challenging because it's probably going to challenge perhaps because it challenged myself something that we have missed or misunderstood about what it means to belong to the family of God. And what I'm about to say isn't to say that the first thing is inherently wrong or bad, but that there's perhaps a different or better way of viewing our life with Jesus. So we're going to put a blank uh, slide up here on the screen so I can do some fun, cool drawings and that type of stuff. Uh, let's go. Yeah, red, oh, black, blue, green, red. Red sounds good. Cool. We'll do red today. All right. So here's kind of what happens is going on. And, and here's what I thought. 
I'm left-handed, so I'm going to go over here. We live with this understanding, and perhaps this is how you came to faith, and it says, you live here on planet Earth, and here's you, and you are going about life, and over here is heaven. And when you die, you want to go to heaven someday. And so here's the thing, though, is there is a gap here. Because of our sin that separates us from the glory of God, we cannot mend that gap on our own. And, and we'll I hate to break it to you, but there is some bad news. There's this place called hell down here, and we are all destined to go to hell when we die. Why? Because we are not good, we are not holy, we are not righteous, but God is good. God is holy. God is righteous, full of love and grace. And so he made a way, he made a plan, he created a bridge, and that bridge is named Jesus, who allows us to walk on his work order to get to heaven when we die. You tracking with me so far? There's a good chance that there might be some of you in the room that this is how the gospel was explained to you. And here's my thing. This is not theologically wrong. This is not doctrinally incorrect. But here's what it does do. It does two things. Number one, it says that life here uh, on heaven and life here on earth are completely separate. That your knowledge of eternity doesn't need to actually impact life here and now. That the whole point of the gospel, and maybe this is an overly simply way to put it, but what this form of the gospel says is the point of the good news is to get me out of hell. And I think this is what a lot of us have in some ways been led to hear and know and believe. Again, is this wrong? It is not wrong. Don't misunderstand me here. But in similar to the Jews in Acts chapter 13, they say, oh, we get it now. Jesus came so that we can get to heaven. And the spirit of God moves and brings a little bit of heaven to earth the next week saying, you want to experience some heaven on earth right now? Look at all these people. And they say, whoa, 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 whoa. Aren't these supposed to be separate? Aren't these supposed to be kept apart? Because this form of the gospel, what it does is it tells us is that eternity is then and there. And it doesn't impact life here and now. This is an escapism form of faith in God and following Jesus. That at some point, the whole goal of the gospel, the whole goal of faith is to just get out of this place, to go to heaven and avoid hell. I would say that that's kind of boring. And I believe that there is a better, more important way in which we view the gospel that Paul is kind of pulling on and explaining here in Acts chapter 13. Because if the whole point of the gospel is to live, make the right choice, go to heaven when you die, what's the point of the Holy Spirit? What's the point of Galatians chapter 5 saying the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control? What's the point of pursuing those things? But don't just take my word for it. Let's take Jesus' word for it. When Jesus talks about the gospel, the good news, this is what he says. It's Mark chapter 1. It's not going to come on the screen because I want to leave this drawing up, but I'll just read this. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it begins this. It says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. 
And then the first time we see Jesus speaks about the good news, this is what he says in verses 14 and 15. It says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe. Not the kingdom of God has been established and it'll be waiting for you. Not the kingdom of God is like a gift put on layaway and then when you die and you've made the right choice and the transaction was good, you get to go to heaven. The kingdom of God has come near. Isn't that a little bit different than how we sometimes view faith and gospel? It's here now. It has, it has come. It, we are not waiting for it. All of scripture ends in the book of Revelation, not with God blowing up this earth like Alderaan and Star Wars reference there. Yeah, you get it. Like three of you. But it ends with the redemption of all things. This earth will be restored back to the way that God has created it to be. If the whole goal of the gospel is to escape earth and go to heaven, then why does Jesus say, you partake in ushering in my kingdom? Why is the call to the Jewish people in Acts chapter 13, you have a part to play in the advancement of this kingdom? Why is obedience necessary in a part of living with Jesus? Because there is a better way. And let me draw that out for you here this morning. Oh, I don't know what happened here. Was that like my arm probably? Okay, cool. Don't, don't, don't look at all this part. Okay. Compose yourself. Okay. Genesis 1. How does everything begin? In the beginning, God created champagne and Urbana. No, sorry. God created the heavens and the earth, right? No mention of hell. FYI. God created the heavens and the earth. And if you've been with us for, for years, you know this is one of my favorite things to, to talk about. And the overlap between heaven and hell in life, that God's intent was this thing called shalom. Not just a good Jewish greeting. It's a word that means peace. It means harmony. It means unity. God creates heaven. He creates earth. He creates them to exist together in a perfect, harmonious relationship full of peace, no pain, no nothing except joy and excitement with him. Two pages later, Genesis 3 comes in, this idea of sin and pride begins to come in. And what does it do? What does sin ultimately do? Some of you separates you from God. No, that's the result of sin. What sin ultimately does is it distorts God's creation. We can get all philosophical here, but here's the thing. Take any sin, and what you will realize is that sin is just something that God created and intended to be good that's been distorted in a way that wasn't meant to be used or lived. Some of you are like, you got something to talk about over lunch, right? Sin comes in and makes distortions over God's creation. Literally, we could say hell is introduced into us and into this world. And God says, I won't stand for it. I've got a plan, I've got a way, I've got a purpose, I've got love, I've got grace, mercy, compassion in order to expel sin out of my creation. And here's how I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna send my son Jesus at some point 
And he's going to live the perfect life on the cross. He's going to die so that he can push sin out of this life forever. So that when we die, we do get to go to heaven. And so here's what I need you to hear me. And here's what I need you to get. This message of the gospel says the whole point of the gospel is to get you out of hell. This representation says the point of the gospel is to get the hell out of you and the hell out of this earth. Because there is a redemption happening in our lives. If you are a follower of Jesus, there is a call to live out that life as a new creation. When Paul stands in front of that Jewish crowd in Acts chapter 13, he says, you've been living here, but this is where we need to be. The whole point of Jesus' gospel restoration salvation is not for you to go to heaven when you die, but for you to begin to experience that here and now. Isn't that powerful? Doesn't that change things? Doesn't that make sense? When Jesus says things like this, hey, crowd, uh, is killing people bad? And they're like, "Uh, yeah, it kind of is. Cool. Don't just kill people. Don't be angry either. Why? Because anger leads to murder. Don't just kill people, but let me show you how to redeem that. Is adultery bad? Certainly is, Jesus. Cool. Don't just not do adultery, don't lust. Let me redeem your thoughts and your way of life so that you can begin to experience sex and relationships in the way that it was intended to be. Remember when I said this is challenging? Think about what this might mean for us. Message one tells us this life doesn't really matter. If this all it amounts to be, just die and go to heaven. But Jesus and the gospel speaks a lot. There's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of things to be pursued. There's a lot of ways in which we live. So the question I think for us, well, what's the point of faith? What's the point of the gospel? Is it really just to go to heaven when we die? Or is there something greater waiting for us here and now? The Apostle Paul will go on to write this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2, uh, sorry, verses 10 through 18. He says these words. He says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to go to heaven when we die. To do good works. Why? Because this life matters, which God prepared us for advance to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were called Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, a.k.a. the Jewish people, which is done in the human body by the hands, remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility 
By setting aside his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he has put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Just like how Antioch was established to be a mini Rome. You wanna know what Rome is like. You wanna know what the emperor is like. You wanna know what the culture is like. The Jewish people were chosen to be an Antioch, so to speak, of the kingdom of heaven. You wanna know what God is like. You wanna know what heaven is going to be like. Be my representation, be my beacon of hope and light and goodness. Be the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And they said, no, we don't want them to mix. We don't like that message. And Paul said, okay, I'll go to the people who will receive it. Message two, because this life matters and it matters a lot. And it doesn't just matter in what we think about the afterlife, it matters in how we treat one another, how we speak to one another, how we, how we can fight and advocate for one another, how you speak about people, how you speak about people when they're not in the room how husbands are called to love and pursue their wives, how wives are called to love and pursue their husbands, how kids are to be raised with Christ as the, as the, the cornerstone, how we steward our money, how we manage our homes, how we make priorities and values in life, all that and more is taking part of getting the hell out of our hearts and out of this earth because the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven has come. The king has come, died, and he rose again, saying, welcome to my shalom. You get to play a part with me. I'll close with this thought, is that the gospel changes everything, not just eternity. It changes everything. It's what the gospel is all about. It's what we are all about here at this church. Somebody asked me last week, why, do, why are we doing a spiritual growth survey? I said, because we care about getting the hell out of, no, I'm just kidding. Because we care about being obedient to the kingdom of heaven. And we wanna help you find new ways to walk closer with Jesus. If you haven't had the time to do that, take 10 minutes today, tomorrow, go app website, help us understand because the gospel changes everything. The question of the gospel is not, where will you go when you die? The question is, how will you live knowing the truth about eternity? The gospel is given to change everything about who we are, not just our eternal status. I invite you to pray with me this morning as we continue to worship. Heavenly Father, you are good. 
there is sometimes no other word. And it's weird because good is such kind of a lame word for us in our culture. How are you doing today? Good. But you are the definition of good. And in that goodness, we find you. In that goodness, we find your love. In that goodness, we find your mercy and your grace and your compassion and your, and your judgment. All of that is good and it comes from the fact that you are holy. Lord, be with us as we seek to live life here and now as beacons of that goodness, as beacons of your gospel, of your message. May we take seriously the call to be participants in advancing your kingdom by your gospel, through your son, through the power of your spirit living in us. Father, we worship you and you alone, for you alone are good. It's your name that we pray, amen.